1: Greg, what is up buddy?
0: Matt, good to see you. We're back uh, back in action. I, I I recorded without you last week or last episode. I hope you're not I hope you didn't take it personally.
1: No, it's all good. Although I do wonder, you said something at some point about like, uh, Zakir being better looking than me. So I
0: caught I, um, I that I thought I, I maybe would have edited or dumped on the audio for that one. I, maybe I thought the, the, the camera, you know, the recording was off, but damn, it made through. Sorry about no, that. No, that's
1: all right. That's all right. Z- Zakir's a good looking dude, man. And that was a good episode. Um, a lot of traction early, early with that episode, which is really cool. I think people have a good appetite to see what's going on with that guy and people like him in the, in the small watch space, you know, basically brands like, you know, Haim and, and Bowsell and Mark II, everybody's got a, a big appetite for that stuff.
0: Yeah, no kidding. You know, we're just past all the watches and wonders stuff. So, you know, I think it's a lot of fun to see what's out there with the quote unquote big brands and some of the stuff could be pretty high end, and so there's you know the opposite side of it. It's kind of refreshing sometimes to see things that are you know a little bit more um, you know geared to enthusiasts and and maybe don't have carry all the same uh, price tags. So um, lots of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So the gist of this
1: episode is we're going to spend the next three and a half hours basically debriefing watches and wonders, and we're going to talk in really really like minute detail about the latest like Nats ass change to the specification of. Every Rolex reference this year. What do you think?
0: Sounds good. As long as you put Rolex in the title and all the hashtags, it should get plenty of people on board.
1: Yeah, no, just so if you haven't already stopped, uh, listener, we are, we are not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We are actually um, going to cut through the small talk today, kind of skip the usual weather stuff and just get right into it because we have a special guest and a really unusual guest for, I think, the typical watch podcast. We are joined by John, last name redacted. Also known as Mosquito Boat from Instagram. John, how are you, man? It's good to see you.
2: I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: This, um, I, you know, without getting any too far afield, I feel like we've got like a pretty good, like, uh cool mustache convention here on the right. video. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna shave like a point into my Van Dyke. John's got the awesome like chef from PBR Street Gang.
2: Well, I I have to stop you there for a second. I like to uh call it my Robin Olds oh,
1: okay that's, even, that. better. that's yeah, even better that's even better Greg do you know who that is
0: <laughs> I actually don't know who that is
1: oh man okay that is uh that Robin Olds is like the man's man of uh like basically World War II through Vietnam era U.S. Air Force fighter pilots I think he, he basically
2: he, he so he was hated by the top brass but he had the clout because he was a multiple ace and. uh his, and this is how he described it. His big bulletproof mustache was a middle finger to the top brass, but they couldn't say anything because he had clout. He was an ace.
0: All right. So before I let it go, guys, I just did one Google search so I could just get a visual. And first of all, I had the top suggestions were Robin old Robin old's mustache. So I clicked on that and there's this article from air force times. I, I don't know anything about the publication and it says mustache March Robin Olds' mustache is just a sliver of his story. That's uh, I'm. In, you've already got me in. <laughs> yep.
1: Well, you know what? Okay, so this is just one reason, though. This is like a perfect encapsulation of why John is like such a great guest because um, you've you've seen that, right, Greg? You've seen sort of that image, and there's there are a number of iconic images of Robin Olds kind of coming out of the the cockpit of an F four Phantom. Um, you know, either during his time there he was famous for a particular operation there was a, uh, a basically a, a a big offensive counter air operation called operation bolo and uh they, basically they shot down a lot of uh, a lot of migs in north vietnam or over north vietnam but you know that's the kind of thing that people love to see on feeds like our friend surge or you know the uh, the restorian you know, where they've got like some kind of a a zoom in thing, like what kind of watch is that guy or a guy like that in that era wearing? And John just basically in 30 seconds caused you right to have a, a little light bulb go off over your head where you had to look into this. And it, it, it basically, it draws you in, right? It sucks you in. And that is what John's feed is all about. The mosquito boat feed. It is, uh, it's like addictive for people like us who are into the vibe so That's John, why we're super
0: stoked to have this conversation and to sort of get to know John a little bit better. And and I have a feeling that he's going to, you know, draw a few more people in throughout the uh, the course of our, our conversation.
1: Yep. So, hey, before we go any further, this is a watch podcast. Why don't we do the risk check, poor check? Do you want to start us off, Greg? Yeah, I'll
0: go ahead and start. I was trying to think, yeah. you know, whenever... I- think about what to wear for, for these things. I try to, if it's not already on my wrist, I try to consider maybe who we're talking to. And so I don't have a lot of like sort of heavy duty tool watch stuff in the, in the, in the box these days. Um, but I have, uh, my Bowsel, now that you mentioned it earlier, ocean moon Four uh, dive watch, kind of hard to see on the reflection here. Uh, I've got it on this, uh, green sailcloth from strap habit. So it gives it a little bit of a technical, you know, technical look with the, the black, uh, PVD black face, uh, this is a, a gift from our friend Jason. This has got the Mission 1530 um, etched into the case back, which was sort of a, a gift that he put together for mostly the, the producers of the four brands that are going to be doing the single barrel project that he's been a part of and probably should be released pretty soon. But um, but I also thought about it because uh, we had a chat with Aaron and Jamal from Baosol uh, just not too long ago and uh, all around their millspec spec collection And I just thought it was a really cool uh, tie in, you know, that that's, you know, veteran, veteran watchmakers, you know, uh, veteran vets on the uh, design team and then proceeds sort of benefited, you know, vets and veteran causes. So all that put together seemed like the right watch uh, for for tonight's tonight's uh, episode. And in the glass, as Matt likes to say, uh, you know, every watch debutante starter pack includes a Negroni. I riffed on it a little bit. So I made this one with tequila instead. And I I threw a little bit of Luxardo syrup in this too. And I got to say, that was a nice little riff. Um, And so that's what's in the glass and on the wrist. Cheers, guys.
1: Cheers, man. Cheers. So, John, do you want to uh, go next? What is uh, on the wrist and what is in the glass? If you have anything in the glass.
2: So uh, on the wrist, I'm wearing a TR660. Um, I went to the TR, uh, just this past week, I, I kind of rotate between about three watches. Um, I went to the, to the Tornick because I'll be, uh, going out to Frederick, Oklahoma later this week to go jumping. And, um, the watch I, I would be wearing otherwise is a, is a seed dweller, 82 seed dweller that my, my dad handed down to me. And, uh, last time I was out there jumping, uh i was on my plane returning back to san diego and um i went to take my watch off to you know put the the hours back and half of the bracelet was still laying on my thigh and by the grace of god the clasp held it on i could have lost that watch on a jump i would never have found it in the drop zone so i've uh kind of made this commitment to myself i'll never um I'll never jump with that watch again. And if I do, it's gotta be heavily rigged taped to my to my wrist. But um yeah, so it's the the TR660 on the side. I uh I've got a uh, Waltham clock company uh wrist compass from the Vietnam era. It's brass. Um kind of a cool look when I was a young Marine. All the cool guys had these little compass watches uh on the band and uh You know, as I grew older and got more interested in the Vietnam stuff and would look at it, you'd see more and more of that stuff. And uh, I was pretty particular with this being the TR to uh, make sure I had a uh, Waltham compass on this wristband. So finally came in. I have another one, but it's dead stock still in the plastic unopened. And I didn't want to use that one. So this came in this week, go and jump in. That's what I got on the wrist. In the glass, I got the uh, Dickel 8-Year. Uh, I'm not, not too particular about my bourbon. I, I mean, I can't give you a rundown on what the notes are. I know what the flavor of bourbon is, and I know that my go-to is either Makers or Dickel. So uh, that's what I got in the glass.
1: Dude, that works. I love that choice. And just for, I think a lot of people in our audience are going to know what you're talking about as far as, as the watch, but I just want to fill in the blanks. When you say TR, that's the Tornick Rayville. This is the the Bill Yao sort of resurrection yeah. of that brand. Um, that's a fantastic watch. I finally got to see one of those. Greg, you and I were ships in the night at that event, but um, the, uh, oh God, the guys at Notice. Uh, yeah. what is it Intersect.
0: Yeah.
1: I really like that watch. That is a really, really cool. So I'm a a, a Blancpain. Basically, I'm a Blancpain fangirl over here, and I, along with probably a lot of other people, would have really loved it if they had resurrected that brand name on their own and built like a a separate brand, and just basically make something to kind of compete directly, undercut on price the Submariner. But just absolutely punch the Submariner in the face in terms of like legitimacy, say right. hey, you know, um but I'm glad somebody's doing it, and that watch is really fantastic. it looks so cool, and I love the fact that it's on that with the the Waltham piece you know for the compass um mm-hmm. I've got the little clip compass you know that you get I think uh I want to say mine is um well, it's just one of you know one of the major compass manufacturers, yeah, it's not the same it it looks really cool with that that
2: young. As a young infantry guy, I used to wear the little Sunto ones, uh, little plastic ones, probably under ten bucks. But uh, that's what but I have. This this one uh, this one complements the look. And there's like one more piece that, um, and I'll send you pictures of it once once it's completed. There's one more thing on my watch that's missing, and it's something that again the cool guys uh, saw it a lot in the reconnaissance Marines and the salty Marines when I first came in. They'd have a piece of five fifty cord and it would, be, um, it would be gutted. You know, the internal white cord would be pulled out, and, it's, and it was ironed flat. That's what I did with mine anyway. I used to have an old Seiko. I don't, I don't remember what model it was because I, I didn't really pay attention to stuff like that when I was a young guy. And anyways, you took this 550 cord, and you thread it through one side of the pin underneath the face of the watch and up through the other. And it's held in place by a double fisherman's knot. You you tie it down. And so both pins would have to fail for you to lose that watch uh, simultaneously. But it was a way to, it's called a dummy cord in the Marine Corps. But um, I'm waiting on a particular piece. It's a Vietnam era 550 cord, which is a little different from modern day because there's little black flecks in it, which the modern day 550 doesn't have in it uh, paracord as most people probably know it, but uh, yeah, when I get that on here, then I'll, it'll be fully, uh, it'll be done.
1: Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That is like vibe complete rounds complete on that watch.
0: And talk about full circle from the, the sea dweller, you know, story that we just talked about too.
1: (laughs) Here you go. Yeah, totally. Well, hey, I'll I'll round us out. I um I also tried to figure like, hey, what would be best to pick as a watch to wear, you know, given our guests this evening. And I had a couple of things. Greg, I was probably I spent maybe 30 minutes thinking, okay, I'm gonna go out to the safe and dig out my, you know, my Tutima military chronograph. So this is um, John, this is a a German brand with kind of this uh a historically significant chronograph movement in it. And unlike most chronographs, Instead of having these tiny little sub dials where you have to read the elapsed minutes and elapsed seconds on the chronograph, it's got a center-mounted chronograph minutes and seconds in like blaze orange. So it's it's basically the same size as you know the minute and uh, uh, seconds hand, the full size. So you can see it at a glance. And the idea was it was made with these cheap kind of Delrin parts, but they they selected these less expensive parts because there's a lot of a high degree of lubricity. And the watch would continue to run even under like a sustained like 9 and 10 G load. So it was selected for, you know, fighter pilots in the German Air Force. And then eventually other, you know, NATO militaries issued this watch. Super cool. However, John is definitely more of like the, like the period guy. And I couldn't really decide. So I went with something, John, I think this would be a brand you'd actually be interested in. This one, I've got two of them. So I've got the the Zodiac. This is the Zodiac. Super Seawolf Skin 53, the Skin Diver. And this is on... I actually put it on the Weiss watch because he makes such a good... Um, that green like strap. Yeah. Yeah, just to, to have it look kind of OG. But um, this is basically a 39 millimeter, you know, bare bones, dive capable, you know, relatively thin. And really, when you look at it, except for the orange seconds hand on this thing, this brand... Still does like it really, really close one for one for the stuff that they made in in like the late fifties, sixties, and seventies. The modern stuff that they make is very, very similar. They maybe just plus it up one or two millimeters, but Mm. you know, like the font, the you know the dial, furniture, the hand shape, everything looks really, really similar. And so you could you could look at this watch and kind of like Porsches or or whatever you at any any era of production. You're like, oh yeah, it's a nine eleven. Same thing with these watches on the wrist. I actually have the the Super Sea Wolf, that GMT World Timer, but I I brought this one out just to kind of hold it up. I don't know if you can kind of see this in front of yeah. the camera.
0: Very cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It's just they,
0: they did a great job with those. I mean, for for a while it was like if you were trying to hunt those down in good condition, <laughs> it's super hard, and and you really you're getting you're getting pretty much you know nine tenths of the way there with sort of a modern build. So I'm a big fan. Yep.
1: And then in the glass. I've got a uh, basically a pint of Harlan Brewing. Right, this is nice. uh, I think this is a San Diego brand, if I'm not mistaken. This is Tropical Daydream. I tried to you know think of something that would be kind of reminiscent of the tiki vibe. Um, I'm going to recommend a movie at the end of this that that totally made me think of something like this. Um, so anyway, uh, it, great. It is definitely it's not sweet, but it is a little fruity. It's not salty like a goza, but it is. Um, it's just basically like five percent ABV and really quaffable. It's like, you know, we're, we're getting to hot weather again. So this is a good beer.
0: John, have you had Harland? I have not. I have not. Keep an eye out for them. They've got, they're, they're definitely, we have pretty good distribution up in our neck of the woods these days. It's, it's one of my, one, definitely one of the beers I'm super glad to have been introduced to over the last maybe six or 12 months. I literally just a day or two ago had the uh, dark, Dark cherry sour ale. I just poured that uh, over the weekend, and it was super good too. I like their sours a lot. That's that's a really cool, really cool brewery. Yeah, they yeah. make a,
1: a Japanese rice lager that absolutely crushes. You know, just most of the stuff you can get from Japan off the shelf. It's really, really good. They're like great with fish or sushi or whatever. Nice. Absolutely. Well, John, we've kind of done the uh, the brief intro and the risk check, poor check. That's sort of the the mandatory stuff that we cover off on. Um, can you give us just like the you know the thumbnail sketch of your life story? Where Where are you from? What have you sort of what have you done? You've got you've alluded to the fact that you went jumping, um, or you're going to go jumping. And you know, if people are wondering, yeah, he's he's talking about airborne. Um, you'd mentioned being in the Marine Corps. Kind of tell us what sort of leads you to here.
2: All right, so um I am I was born in Everett, Washington. I lived there for my first 3 years. Don't know anything about it. I was born to a, a career sailor. Um when I was 3, we moved down to San Diego. I was here for about uh I don't know. I I would say probably another another few years. And then we moved over to London, England for about four. Um, well, let me backtrack. My earliest memory of military was when I was probably about five years old. My dad was a a ship rider on the, um, USS Tarawa. It was a amphibious assault ship. And, uh, I remember him taking me on board Tarawa and, um, my, my sister was with us and uh, I remember the Marines had a static display and I remember holding one of their rifles and how heavy it was. And I remember them, I was embarrassed because I remember the Marines saying, no, 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 don't point that at anything. But, uh, looking back, uh, I think it was an M 16 with like a 203 under barrel grenade launcher underneath. And uh, so that's my earliest memory of the military. Um, and as I said, we moved out to London, England, Did one year at a uh, Department of Defense school. My parents were like, nope. They pulled me and my sisters out and enrolled us in a public English Catholic school. St. Anselm's was the name. We wore the little blazer and it said "SA" on the uh, patch over your left breast. And, And the craziest thing is on a scroll below the "SA" was our school motto, which was Semper Fidelis. So at the age of seven, I was wearing the motto semper fidelis who knew that you know you know 11 years down the road i'd be joining the marine corps but uh anyways did did 4 years over there moved back here to san diego uh was a water polo player through high school thought uh i wanted to go to school to play water polo and and that's what i did i i uh, did a semester at the local junior college uh my priorities were Anything but studies, they were girls <laughs> in water polo, and uh, needless to say, I needed an out. I was still still at home, didn't make much money with my nothing retail job, and gotten a big fight with my mom one day, and just so happened, the Marine Corps recruiter called that day, and uh, I was like, yeah, I'll come talk to you. I went in there, signed up, I came home, told my mom she was shattered, bawling and uh that was uh that was i think in october of 92 and um i was supposed to ship the following summer called the recruiter i was like you got to get me out of here and uh by december i was uh off to boot camp went in marine corps um chose infantry had asvab scores that were high enough that i could uh Um, do anything on the enlisted side. My second choice was enlisted flight crew and my third was air traffic control. And I'm glad I got neither of those because I probably wouldn't have lasted, um, the whole 20, uh, after that, um, you know, came back to San Diego. I retired out of Florida, as a matter of fact, and, uh, you know, got let down, got let down, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a cop. And, um, I entered, you know, tried to get a job and, uh, I was interviewed three times by Google just to be told no. After that I applied for Academy, which you probably know is Blackwater. I was contacted immediately. And, uh, the administrator, as I found out through my new job, never, never submitted my package, which included a security clearance. And, um, you know, told me that the, you know, the client wanted to go on without me. And so whatever, uh, I stayed retired, fully retired for about six years. And in that time, um, uh, covered a lot of ground. My girlfriend and I, we, you know, right out the gate, we went to Europe for like three months on a one-way ticket and decided, I ah, we should probably come home. And, but, uh, yeah, covered a lot of ground in Asia, Europe, uh, parts of North Africa, And, um, somewhere in there, I found this nonprofit organization that you touched on there a second ago, the jumping World War II airborne demonstration team, which for the last nine years has been a kind of a big part of my life. Um, we, our mission is to remember, honor, and serve the, uh, the World War II, the memory of the World War II paratrooper. And we do that by doing demonstration jumps at air shows around the country, overseas out of World War II aircraft, the same type that they would have jumped from, wearing the same uniforms and everything. And um, so i had done that for the last eight years. And somewhere in there, I'd say probably four years ago, I went back to work. uh, I'm currently a defense contractor for um, uh, a large shipbuilding company. Uh, I'm not a shipbuilder. uh, I'm an ops guy that uh, deals with our customer who is um, the United States Navy. But uh, yeah, and so I'm an avid collector of military, as you could probably tell. And uh, I like all things military. The Machines, to me, they're not inanimate objects. They are uh, warriors in their own right. And if, if you go to a place like um, AMARC, Tucson, Arizona, and you look at those airplanes lined up there. Some of them are thrown down with like nation's foes. And you're going to tell me that those are inanimate objects. Well, I, I don't listen to that.
1: Yeah, I'm going to interrupt for two seconds. So Greg, and for people who are listening, this is a uh, basically a, a, an enormous um, square miles, right, John? I mean, this is basically yeah, outside huge. of Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. It's a, a huge, dry, arid, flat environment where... Basically, the nation's, you know, strategic and tactical aircraft are put either into storage for, you know, later reclamation or breakdown. Um, and in some cases, you know, they're, they're physically broken down so that they can be observed by satellite, you know, for, for treaty obligations and things like that. So you, you can see B-52s with their wings taken off. And that's basically for China and Russia's benefit, but there's huge um, numbers of everything, right, John? I mean, going back Absolutely. to like A, A1 Sky Raiders, F4s, F16s, B52s, everything. tankers, C130s, everything is out there.
2: Yeah. And so uh, like the machine part of it, and then there's the human element, which, um, uh, you know, i I've, I've, I've deployed to combat zones myself and I know what I've seen, but, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine some of what my predecessors saw. And, um, for me being a Marine in particular, and I, I'm sure any guy would feel this way about his service. Uh, the, uh, the level of pride that I have is immeasurable and it's built on these guys that came before me, you know, they, they built the legend that I got to live for 20 years and I'm, I'm just like a small part of it. Just nothing in comparison to, to like what these guys saw. And so, uh, in a nutshell, you know, that, I guess that's, uh, that's me.
1: Right on what you mentioned having a, uh, like an infantry MOS in the Marine Corps. Did you do 20 years, 20 plus?
2: I did. I did 20 years, 24 days. I, um, yeah, as I said, I, I I was what was called a quality enlistment program because I had a uh, no record of drug use, no police record, and I had good ASVAB scores, and uh, I was guaranteed um, my first three choices in geographical location, and so I chose infantry first, enlisted flight crew second, and air traffic control third, and geographical location I chose West Coast because you know I was just, just a young guy. I was like. Ah, I can't quite cut the cord yet. You know, I still was in touch with some of the high school people and my parents were still here. And, um, it probably getting stationed at Pendleton on my first hitch probably saved my Marine Corps career because it gave me a good balance of like transitioning away from 100% civilian to 100%, you know, GI.
1: Yeah. Well then my next question would be, um, with that that kind of focus, and twenty years in, you mentioned doing the like the historical preservation and recreation jumps. Did you ever in the Marine Corps? Did you pass through Benning at any point? Did you? Do I, that I did not.
2: So, um, as a regular infantry guy, going to jump school isn't unheard of, but it's not it's rather the exception than the norm. Like it, if, if you see a regular infantry guy that has jump wings, chances are it was an incentive type of thing, or he graduated ranger school. Cause, uh, we do send certain Marines to ranger school. Uh, ordinarily if you're a Marine and you have jump wings, you're probably in the reconnaissance community or, uh, what's called Anglico air, Naval yep. gunfire liaison company, or air delivery types, uh, or a rigor, or something of that nature. But it's, it's not the norm. You know, the, the Marines, as you probably know, World War II, we had, uh, the paramarines and it, it just wasn't our bag and they were sure. disbanded after a few years. And, um, there are still Marines that are airborne qualified, but, uh, really kind of a, an army, army thing and mass. So I was, uh, what they call a leg. Um, a non-airborne qualified guy my entire time in in the Marine Corps. And you know what? 100% to this day, I'm still a leg. I'm just a leg that happens to have, you know, 70-plus round canopy static line jumps from a World War II C-47. So, but I am a leg.
1: There's nothing wrong with that, man. I, uh, (laughs) Me and Greg are neither. I... (laughs)
2: So we're all the same there. That's a the common denominator with solid.
1: That's got, right. Like, I've
0: got I've got one jump under me.
1: Oh, nice. I don't know if I knew that about you. That's cool. I
0: don't, yeah, I don't think we ever talked about that.
1: Yeah, one of these days I um uh, I've had the discussion with Trish and I've decided that we're we're I'm going to stay married, so I'm not going to pursue that.
0: <laughs> I think that's the right choice. Although I'll tell you, man, it was freaking cool as hell.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we're going to come back to the jumping thing in a second because we, I think we sort of put it together that we have a a little bit of a connection on that, but what is the deal with the title, Mosquito Boat? How, what's, how does that come about?
2: So I don't, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe, maybe it starts with my old man. So, um, told you my dad was a career sailor and, uh, the guy volunteered for Vietnam and, He operated on the premise of, well, I joined the military and the nation needs us. He was an E-6 at the time. And he's like, if a guy joins the military, this is his purpose. So he was a signalman. Skivvy waver, as they they called him in the Navy. And uh, he said, "Uh, I'm volunteering for Vietnam. And so they sent him to the Brownwater Navy. He was a PBR boat captain. So if you've seen Apocalypse Now, my dad was a boat captain on those. Um, so I knew about these small boats. He was a craft master and incidentally my first unit, I was assigned to a raid company, Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 4th Marines. Uh, and I got sent to coxswain course and at Coxon course, I learned how to crew while well, I was the driver on them, uh, 18 and a half foot Boston whalers, which we called rigid Raiders with dual seventies really fast. Um, And I also drove Zodiac F470s, Um, you know, that's what we normally use. So if you ever see those, you know, guys that are laying down on the black rubber boats and little outboard motors, I drove those for uh, my first four years in the Marine Corps. And so from there, I think I developed this interest in, uh, you know, waterborne small boat military and and let me tell you, it was a lot of fun, busting surf and all that stuff. And, you know, somewhere in there, I started looking at uh, PT boats and, you know, PT boats were, were powered by three Packard V12 oh, engines, right. you know, and three Packard V12s versus my either dual seventies or dual 35 pump jets or single 55 horse prop motor. I can't imagine a boat of that size getting up on plane. I, I, I really wish I could hear it. And so I, I've always thought these PT boats were bitching. And uh, one of the nicknames, when, when, when Instagram came about, I knew, uh, well, I want to start this military page. I wanted it to be called after a PT boat, but there's a couple names for PT boats. And one of them was Mosquito Boat. And another one's a Devil Boat. So I thought they were both cool, but uh mosquito boat is so unusual that I went with mosquito boat and probably out of the norm because there's probably a million Marine Corps references that I could have chosen because I, you know, I'm a Marine, but uh mosquito boat is, uh, what I went with and who knows, maybe, maybe that's an ode to my, my pops. Cause, uh, that dude's my hero. Um, so maybe that's it. I, I'm not sure, but I I stuck with it, and it's it's un, I I think it's a bit of an unusual name, and it's like what the hell's a mosquito boat, you know? And uh, I think I've I've done a, a search on mosquito boat before, and I think those little airboats down in Florida pop up, but yeah, uh, yeah, mosquito boat, 100% an ode to the PT boat navy of World War Two.
1: Right on. Well, dude, I've got I brought a show and tell. I I'll have to send this to you or whatever. Did we talk about this once? This is that.
2: No, but I am familiar with the iron butterfly. It's it's I don't know the number, but I know it's a PBR unit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um this basically it's a uh if I gather, you know, the authors on this, you know, were guys who were there kind of at the time and probably just literally strung together. Their own recollections with like the patrol logs, but it it basically just provides a. I mean, it's it's written, you know, compared to like, you know, really professional um, kind of historical accounts, it's mm. not quite, you know, that that detailed or maybe up to that that scratch or whatever the term is. But it's very interesting. I mean, we had a family friend he passed about two years ago, and he um, also was a skipper on PBRs. And you know had had been decorated, and his family recommended this book. I I knew a bit about that stuff, so if if you've never read this, I think I got this on Amazon for like fourteen bucks, and it's the kind of thing you can just pick up in the middle and start reading. And it's just again, it's just like one massive run on sentence almost, Um, not literally, but I mean in terms of like how the the thing you know their time progressed over you know two or three maybe years in in country as part of that um river task force and all the mm. stuff that they did very interesting well dude so that's mosquito boat um i think one of the questions that i had and greg feel free to inter- interject i know you know this is kind of maybe a little more my wheelhouse than yours but i mean if you've got anything jump in but i i do have a question and that is I don't know if this is going to make sense, but how do you feed like your inner sense of like historical personification? Where do you get inspiration and and what do you do? Like, do you have, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the USS Midway, you know, that's a resource you have in San Diego. I read books and, and, you know, I'm U S Naval Institute member for like 30 years. Do you do stuff like that? Like, how do you find all this stuff? The stuff that you, you post and the stuff that you come across is just amazing.
2: So Um, I, I have to renew it this year, but last year we were members of the Midway and I've been a member of the Midway in the past. Um, I am surrounded here. I mean, I look around this room and there's, there's a lot of military stuff here. Um, you know, I, San Diego, big military town. When I go out picking, I guess that's the, uh, I guess that's the term. Um, I call it search and destroy missions and I measure success in what I call kills. And that's like something that I bring home and I'm always on the lookout for uh, cool military stuff. I, 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 like to think that I have an eye for what's like, um, out of the norm. And sometimes I get really lucky. Um, and I, I've got a, I've got a couple buddies out there who are like boots on the ground for me that know what I like hey, John, this is what I found. Are you interested? And so that's another resource. but um, for me, the inspiration's all around San Diego, and uh, the the military was just such an ingrained part of my life from, you know an early age, and I'm st- you know, I'm still part of the spear. You know, I used to be at the tip of it, you know, as a marine infantry guy deployed, but I'm still part of the spear way down at the bottom at the ferrule, you know, that little metal piece at the bottom. But I'm, I still feel like I'm connected to because I help, I help train these guys that uh, are part of the big blue water Navy. Um, And so it's not hard for me and I don't have to look hard to find inspiration. And uh, it's, it's kind of a tireless interest of mine. I, I don't, I, It's strange. I just, I don't get tired of any of it. You know, World War II, Vietnam, and like it goes, it goes in cycles, like what I like better and like what I go back to, but it's, it's ever present. It hasn't really faded for me. And the only time it did was probably when I was a water polo player, just like crazy about girls and like in high school and want to go to junior college. But ever since then going in the military and you know, here I am now, it hasn't really faded that interest.
0: So I have a question. That's awesome, by the way. It's like this lifelong pursuit sort of, right? Like, um, But like, so we kind of understand, I think, you know, maybe some of the genesis, but like, what made you say, like, I've been collecting these things. I want to tell more stories. I'm, I'm curious, like how anybody starts their Instagram page, right? Why are we like, Hey, this is the place to do it. Right. And then on top of that, as you tell us that story, like, how would you describe your page? Like for somebody who maybe hasn't seen it or isn't as familiar with it as we might be.
2: I would describe my page as like all things military, particularly with an American or Western vein, but you'll see me put stuff in there from old Eastern Bloc stuff. I find kind of cool or, you know, sometimes, uh, from some obscure military, but, uh, I would, I would just call it a, um, Kind of a cornucopia of like military stuff. And like lately, I've, I find interest in the people, like, be it their gear, their equipment, something that, uh, that is out of the norm or nine times out of 10 from a bygone era. Um, guy, a guy kitted up in like his camouflage or, um, you know, I, I would just describe it as, uh, a military interest page, uh, with an attempt at finding the not so norm stuff, if that makes sense.
0: And what brought you to, to that medium? Do you think like, was it just the visual aspect of it? Was there other people and buddies that you had already connected with on there and it seemed like the right place to put it? Like, how did it, how did the page actually start?
2: I, you know, I think, uh, I had a different page. I still have it. I, I just, I never go there. There's probably a handful of posts. It was my personal page. Like, you know, it's probably like 12 posts on there. Um, nothing military really, except for one of my dogs at the time was like snooping around. I have this M 60 machine gun that's demilitarized, but it's like one of my prized paperweights. That's like the only military thing on my former page And so uh, I just wasn't that into it because you know I'd had Facebook and it just kind of seemed like the same thing. And uh, but then you know I think there's some kind of truth to like uh, you know people like I I don't know inspiring or influencing other people and you know like uh, it's 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 kind of a good feeling when you put something out there and people like it. And uh, you know another part of it is like if you look through my feed, you'll see like you can find stories on young KIAs and like uh, guys that were killed um, or guys I knew. Uh, and I, I like to bring attention to these guys, you know, um, I can think of a post I did a few years ago on October 23rd. Uh, you know, that's when the Marine MC was or the Marine barracks rather in Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon was bombed. And I, I, you know, I went through and did some research and found like a handful of dudes who were like, nobody remembers, you know, except the dudes that were there probably. But you know what? My hope is that maybe three or 400 people looked at my page and they know this kid's name whose life ended in Beirut, Lebanon. He was 18. And, you know, at my current age, that's so sad to me, you know, like the, I, I realize how young 18 is when, when you're in it, you, you really don't, you know, you think, you know, you've been around, but dude, you haven't tasted life. You're like 18, man. But, um, yeah. So, you know, it was just a combination of things and it was a way for me to stoke my interest, my natural interest in, in anything military. And, uh, I mean, I, I learned, so I I learned a lot from Instagram, you know, uh, People that shoot it down or whatever. Well, I don't care. It, to me, it's a it's an awesome resource for information, and, and I enjoy that about it. I learn a lot, not only from doing the research on my own, but mostly from other people. You know, like what they post. So I think it's a it's a good tool in that regard. So that's how I started yeah, I think, it. I,
1: I think there's a, a huge difference, right, between the experience, the user experience, and the value you get as, you know, 40 and 50-year-old grown-ass, you know, man and or woman, maybe not and or uh, or woman, um, has a probably completely different take, a different experience. And, you know, a lot of the negative stuff that, you know, a 14 or 15-year-old kid would probably encounter for us, it's like, you know, it's just, it's very easy to separate the wheat from the chaff mentally. No, it's a, it's a good point. Um you can, you can certainly learn a lot if you have your, your eyes open and it's a visual medium that you can dive into. It's very cool.
2: Absolutely. And you know, um, uh, it's on you what you want to expose yourself to. So if you don't like something or someone, the way they talk to you, Hey, you have the power to get them out of there. You know, you have the the power to choose what you want to see across your feed. So
1: right on. Well, dude, um, I've seen, this is just stuff just off the top of my head, not even leaving out the stuff about, you know, the, the jumping and stuff like that. But I've seen from you stuff like, you know, historical garb, um, you know, edged, basically tools, edged weapons, uh, you know, old, you know, vintage firearms. I used to have a Garand. I wish I still had it. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you. Do you ever think I mean you've got a couple watches you've alluded to at various points? I you know, I recall you talking about having had, you know, a presumably a mechanical Seiko. I think you had some of the cool guy watches from the past twenty years, you know, Sun Two and uh, you know, maybe big Garmin's and G Shocks and stuff like that that a lot of, you know, service members have now. Do you see at some point, you know, watches ever kind of grabbing you the way the other gear has? Because I mean in in eras, you know, gone by, a mechanical watch in particular was something that you kind of had to have because th- there there was no reaching into the phone, you know pocket and checking your iPhone or, you know, having some kind of digital reference that was super accurate everywhere you went, you know, in theater or on deployment or whatever. Everybody had to have a watch, even if it was a cheap watch. Is yeah. that something you, you, you could see yourself ever getting into or into more?
2: <laughs> you know, I... Uh... I could see. I could very easily fall into that. Um, I, I I have four watches. You know the um, the first the first one I really got was uh, outside of that Seiko I wore as a young infantry guy. That I have no idea where it is. Um, I have a uh, that Sea Dweller that my dad handed down to me. After that came a, uh, a GMT two that I bought when I was out in the Caribbean after my Iraq deployment. And then, um, my dad gave me a, uh, a watch that he bought when he was in Vietnam from the ship store. This is a, uh, Tudor Prince. Oh,
1: cool. Oh dude. With the, yeah, oh, these are
2: Alang- This is an Alangapo bracelet. He had these yep. made, um, before he actually was promoted to master chief. But, um, you know, I had this one and then the TR came along and, uh, you know, I guess it's Instagram that, you know, introduced me to the nomenclature of Captain Willard's watch and, you know, the 6105, 80, you know, 8110, like, God damn, that's a nice watch. I, uh, you know, I think I might need one of those. And then I start reading about <laughs> other watches. Like I've seen the, um, the Zodiacs and, the 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 name devil diver for caravels like they had me i was like what is this caravel like devil diver and then there's the the um the different seikos of mac v the other the other ones that that captain willard didn't have on his wrist and then there's the dirty dozen so i i have been exposed to like some of this stuff and um i could see me going down that rabbit hole but uh I tell you, I, uh, I have so many interests related to military that I almost purposely try to turn a blind eye to it because it is, it is an expensive, uh, endeavor. Um, but you know, it's, it's also one in which I don't think you're gonna, I don't think you're gonna lose your money. I think it's a worthy investment. So, um, I could definitely see myself, um, getting more involved with watches. You know, I, again, I go in cycles. Like, uh, I, I thought I needed like a, a, Kermit flat four, um, there for a while. And, and interestingly enough, it was between that watch and the GMT I chose. Um,
1: you, you chose the right one.
2: Well, yeah. Yeah, when I did. So anyways, yeah, I, I could definitely uh get into it, but I'm probably suppressing the urge to uh to to get these watches. But um yeah, I I, I could definitely
0: see myself uh going down that rabbit hole. You're you're wise. You're very wise. I love what you said because I think I thought it in my head, but I don't think I've ever verbalized it before. Like I thought I needed this. <laughs> I have found myself in that headspace often.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, my dad always used to say, uh, do you want it or do you need it, bud? Do you want it or do you need it? He's right. I I try to uh, apply that when I, you know, am in the horns of dilemma about purchasing something. So do you want it? Do you need it? So,
1: well, as you say, usually, you know, especially with stuff like uh, the watches you have, I mean, you've got, it's a, a small quantity, but those are like legit heavy hitters, right? That, that tutor, I, you'll have to post pictures of that sometime on your wrist. Cause that thing is, and maybe you have, not I just haven't seen it, but for people who are listening to this people, this, this thing is magnificent. It's, it's so baller, but you've got that, you got a GMT, you got a, a vintage sea dweller. That's amazing. And then now kind of a, you know, a, a daily companion in that Tornick Rayville you sort of don't need anything else, but but you really do.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I need to stop talking to guys like you in a <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's your that was your first mistake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, yep. Well, Hey, uh, so I've got another question. This is sort of random, but Greg, you will probably remember. Um, I've mentioned this guy once or twice. I think once when we had Cole Pennington on, he, we were talking about this uh, this cool old cat that he met up at the airport, knocking around at the airport up at, uh, Paso Robles. And he was describing this guy and I'm like, I know a hundred percent who this guy is. You know, he's my brother-in-law's neighbor. The guy is a, uh, an incredibly, well, was, um, nickel in the grass. This guy, uh, passed tragically, um, in an aviation mishap this last year. But, uh, he was a experienced you know tailhook aviator he flew um, i don't know if he did a deployment he might have he was a vietnam era uh, pilot in f4s and i think maybe he did do a deployment maybe toward the end of the war but this guy ended up amassing tens of thousands of hours in in commercial aircraft everything you know from flight instruction crop dusting unlimited class air racing and i posted a picture of one of the airplanes he's involved with he doesn't own it but you know it's kind of owned by the museum up there um, and it's a uh, an immaculately restored C forty seven up at the Estrella Warbirds Museum, and every once in a while, like I've looked up and I've seen it. You know, it it did that. You remember during COVID, you guys, when uh, all over Southern California, a huge gaggle of warbirds did this, yeah. you know, big tour kind of around the airspace to kind of because people couldn't go out, so they kind of gave an impromptu air show. Well, he was he was flying that, but this guy Sherm Smoot Sherman. Um, he was a winemaker and lived basically on the backside of my brother-in-law, their hill up there where they have vineyard property and they knew each other. And we knew this guy's just a great old dude. And John was like, Betsy, that's the name of the airplane, right? It's Betsy's biscuit bomber. John, you've jumped out of this airplane.
2: I have not jumped out of Betsy's biscuit bomber, but I've been up in her twice. Uh, the first time I went up, was in michigan at the thunder over michigan air show a few years back uh willow run i think it's willow run or willow grove one of the two um the winds were too high for us to jump and so to appease the crowd they they just basically did racetracks in c47s and we got up in in betsy's biscuit bomber and then uh, a couple years later in 2019 for the DAX over Normandy, DAX is, uh, is short for Dakota. It's what the British uh, used to call the C-47. We call it Skytrain. They call it Dakota. So the DAX over Normandy event had a number of C-47s flying from Duxford, England, over to France. And we jumped into um, sainter which was drop zone original drop zone K. Per, it was a British drop zone. But uh, the second time I flew in Betsy's Biscuit Bomber was uh, at Duxford. Um, I think we were at Duxford for about two and a half or three days. And one of those days, it was the same thing. We got, we got tacked up with our chutes and the, the crowd was led to believe that we might jump, but winds were a possibility. And to my understanding, <coughs> you can't jump round canopies in the uk recreationally and so we got up in these aircraft we knew we weren't going to jump and uh betsy's biscuit bomber was the one that i drew and uh, we just did racetrack around and came back down and um uh, this is actually really cool little side note uh we got off the airplanes and you know we're all tacked up our faces are blackened and we're wearing our reward II jumpsuits and i was uh going through youtube looking for videos of the event and I found one that I'm in and I was walking the crowd line and someone in the crowd was filming me and one of the guys that was in my stick. And, uh, the, the, the camera was like right on me. And I look at this guy and I'm like, yeah, those Germans got lucky today. And like, uh, all the crowd was like, hey! it was really cool. But, uh, yeah, those are the two times that I, uh, that I had gone up, in a Betsy's Biscuit armor. I don't know if I know that guy or if I've ever met him strong possibility. I have, if he was involved with either of those, Evolutions,
1: but uh. he did. Yeah, he was uh, one of the crew, one of the pilots that that flew that over there. It was in the in the year leading up to that. It was a huge undertaking to raise money and awareness because they really had to get that airplane up to scratch. Because Greg, if you can picture this, I mean, this is an airplane that flies like on a good day with a tailwind, like two hundred and twenty miles an hour ground speed, flying from basically you know Southern California, Central California to England you know, and basically unsupported, you know, so it's, they've, they're, you know, flying out two, three, four hops to get to the East coast. They did a bunch of like demo flights, you know, I Mm -hmm. think, uh, you know, up there and then, you know, to like Newfoundland and then, you know, Gander and then maybe to the other side of that. And then to Iceland, I mean, literally how they would have hopped across kind of the Northern top of the world on a great circle route to Ireland and then to England. And I mean they had to do all kinds of stuff, John. You can imagine. I mean, they had to do, you know, basically Arctic ditch training. Yeah. And yeah. you know, um, exposure suit training, because they're, you know, this was they weren't, you know, jumping out of this airplane. I mean, maybe they could have. Yeah. But, you know, this is basically a, a, by today's standard, I mean, this is a, a very um fraught undertaking. You know, yeah. considering, you know, there's, there's no weather radar on the airplane. It, they have modern equipment, but I mean, this airplane wasn't built with stuff like GPS or inertial navigation. There's no satellite communication. There's nothing, you know, it's just, you're, you're going about the same speed that Charles Lindbergh flew across and, you know, literally winging a prayer in it. So they raised all this money to get the maintenance, you know, tip top, get everything right, get all the ancillary gear, the ditch gear that they would need and to plan everything. And he, I didn't spend like thousands of dollars, but I mean, I made a pretty sizable donation to him enough to get some, some free wine out of it. And that's kind of how I, I got to know the guy a little better, but, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really cool thing. I, Greg, there's, if you ever want to look it up, I mean, it was massive. Cause that was what that was, was that the 75th anniversary?
2: It was the 75th and, uh, there, yeah. there's actually <laughs> a documentary about it. I, the, the name of the documentary escapes me, but there was a number of them that went over from the U S and, uh, those guys looked out for each other. Like with, they had maintenance issues. Um, but I mean, do the math. Would, would you want to, would you want to do a comparable distance in like a, uh, 80 year old car, you, you know, could it make it? Yeah. Conceivably with a lot of problems, but, uh, they did it. They did it. And it's, a uh, pretty amazing the uh the depth of that that mission that those guys undertook so
1: yeah i mean they flew these things from all over the world greg so there's you know probably i mean realistically there's probably a few hundred of these airframes flying but the ones that are like show worthy and that could actually make the trip you're talking maybe what was there john probably 30 airplanes there maybe a little bit less
2: yeah there's probably about that (coughs) many um for the mast formation, I don't think we had that many because a couple would be deadlined along the way. Um, but, uh, when we jumped in, I mean, it's, it's the largest, uh, formation of aircraft I've jumped with. I mean, I've never done it. It's called a mass tack in the military mass tactical. I've never done a mass tack, uh, of (laughs) not of this magnitude. I mean, I was in the second ship and, well, we when I jumped out, I mean, geez, Louise, I look everywhere and I just see jumpers all around. And then I'm still under canopy, and here's another um, another flight of them coming over me, and I'm watching the dudes spill out, you know, a few hundred feet above me, coming out, and it's just is it incredible the amount of uh, jumpers in the air. So. Uh, yeah, it's it was a lifelong memory. I'll never forget it and uh, hopefully it can be repeated at, at uh, next year at the 80th. It won't be of that scale, but uh you
0: know, hopefully it's close.
1: Right on. Greg, did you have something?
0: No, no. Just it, it you know, okay. it's incredible to sort of, you know, like you said to understand the the undertaking in sort of these, you know, uh, the events that you're discussing and you know, the work that you're doing now with the nonprofit. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, you're a little bit awestruck just thinking about the intensive planning that goes into it. And of course the execution, you know, so it's, it's it's pretty fascinating to hear it from sort of the insider's perspective.
1: Well, hey, I've got a, uh, this is a, at least in my mind, this is kind of a heavy question and maybe it's, um, you know, not, not too big a deal for you, but and, and f- sort of follow me here. I mean, it seems like based on what we've talked about and everything in the feed, I mean, the, the history of things and, and sort of, you know, paying the respect to the, not just to the history, but to the the work and, you know, the effort, the sacrifice of the people who were alive at the time, you know, whatever time it was, whether you're talking about the, the Vietnam era or World War II or, or going further back seems like that's really important to you. I am curious. I don't know if you saw this question I I sent this along just to let you think about this. But um this question kind of implies the likelihood of bearing witness, right, to something, you know, things that are terrible, you know, terrible events. But if you could travel back in time and be this detached like an omnipresent omniscient observer to any significant historical event or sequence of events in history and i mean because of the nature of this conversation it's kind of we're talking about war history but maybe maybe other things have you ever given any thought to that like i mean if you could literally be just a a fly on the wall watching something unfold without you know with the understanding that you know maybe there would not be the 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 massive impact on your psyche, you know, witnessing something, but is there something that you feel like compelled to have borne witness to if you could? So
2: I've always said that there, you know, there's a couple, there's a couple times in military history. If, if there was a time machine, I would like to warp it back into. And, um, one of those times was, uh, the long range desert group and or SAS, in North Africa, World War II. I would say more so the LRDG. But when I saw this question, I looked at this question, I started thinking in terms of like my own bloodline and um, Marine Corps wise, that is. And there's probably two eras or two moments in marine corps history that i would like to have borne witness to one of them would have been um the korean war chosen reservoir uh the first marine division is very near and dear to my heart i've served in all three infantry regiments in in the division that's who i went to uh, iraq with and no marine unit in history has faced longer odds than my division at the chosen reservoir who threw down with 10 Chinese divisions and they came out. So, and those guys are largely forgotten, you know, the, uh, the chosen reservoir guys. And, and what they did is nothing short of amazing. And then the other, the other thing that, uh, I would like to have seen is the Marines at way city. I've been to way city, Vietnam, The Marines weren't sure what they were getting into. um, But uh, it was a really tough fight house to house. These guys had transitioned from jungle fighting right back into uh, house to house, which they hadn't done since probably 1950, 51 over in Korea. And uh, a lot of Marines fell there. But... Those those young Marines were so hardcore, and they, they just did it. They just, uh, you know, guys are guys are dying all around, and but these guys never quit. And uh, they're from my division, First Marine Division guys. And uh, I I said it already tonight. The, the pride that is mine because of guys like this is immeasurable. And I would love to uh, go back and see these these young guys, especially at my age. <laughs> like, dude, those guys are. Those dudes, 18 years old. I saw it myself in Iraq. I have to tell you this real quick, if you got a second. Like, I had to clear out this sector. Um, it was our first day of operations in country. There was one rifle company holding down this sector. It's called Barwana, this town. And they were having a rough time. It was a battalion out of Hawaii, Fox 2 3, I think it was. And so we went in with three times the combat power and, uh, I was going to kick off the clearance and I would secure and set in what's called overwatch so that the next element can come through the secured area. It's like leaping and bounding. And, uh, whenever you go in on an operation, you're given like the, what's called the most dangerous course of enemy action and the most likely course of enemy action. The most dangerous course of enemy action was that they would be defending the sector from prepared positions, reinforced with IEDs. I had 27 guys in my platoon and six trucks, and I had 13 dismounts. So there would be 13 guys clearing this area. My trucks were to go on the high ground and screen the area. And... We hit this release point up this wadi. Like this little depression, the trucks, they drive up there. The Marines dismount the trucks and they run up to the lip of this wadi. I give one last report over the radio to my commanding officer. I tell him that we're commencing the clearance of my sector. Time now. He's said, Roger, push. I run up to the lip of this wadi and I will never, ever forget looking down the line at my guys. They're like you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. I didn't tell them to go. I didn't say anything. They went on their own and they start clearing these buildings and I could hear them clear, clear. And, you know, we think any second now they're going to start shooting and they never did. But I will never forget as long as I live the tenacity of these young dudes who just went and did it, you know, knowing full well what might be in front of them. And, 2006 in Iraq, guys were dying, you know. And uh, yeah, that
1: was a bad time. Yeah, not a good time.
2: But uh, so, Way John, City, we
1: same a platoon guy. platoon sergeant by then, or
2: I was a platoon commander. We were short of uh, officers in the company, so I uh, I commanded a mobile assault platoon. Six six okay. gun troops, six Humvees, twenty seven guys. I had in my platoon.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that that's uh, an amazing thing. I know, so I feel like I know more about chosen than Way City, and you know, I'm somebody who is geeky about that stuff, and that's just one of those things where there's just not enough written about it, um, not enough sort of you know visual evidence that you can you can see now. You know, there's so much stuff from Iraq and and Afghanistan and and GWAT. You know where you can understand, I think visually how things work a lot more if you're a member of the younger generation versus, you know, going back further. Um, yeah. Interesting. I I was wondering if you were going to say something really far back, you know, like, uh, you know, the Barbary coast or, or Barbary (laughs) pirates or.
2: Yeah. I I love those guys (laughs) by virtue that they were Marines, but, uh, my interest doesn't really come on until post World War One, to be totally honest with you. So,
1: sure, sure. Um, Greg, any final questions for John?
0: No, I, I, it was funny as you were asking that question, though I was, I, I wondered how John was going to answer. And in part of me, part of me was thinking, God, I mean, to to be a fly on the wall with the experience and the passion and the camaraderie that you have would be. Probably be so damn hard, right? You'd be like, no, if I'm here, I'm in. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know. So it was an interesting way to frame that question, but your your response was really measured and thoughtful. So it was really, really cool.
1: Yeah, Greg, we'll have to talk about that sometime. That's a question I don't ask very often, but I do wonder it, you know, frequently about other people and their experiences. Like, you know, if this person could translate themselves back in time and just to to observe with all of you know the negative consequences of bearing witness to some, you know, maybe some really bad things. Cause I mean, unfortunately, let's face it, a lot of the most consequential things in human history, um, you know, involve bad things, you know, people doing bad things to each other. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, that's the sort of thing where, you know, uh, you, you get to witness maybe some of the most shining acts of heroism or, or selflessness or, or, you know, grace at the moment of death. And that's an important part of, of human history and every single person, right. Is, is an element of human history, but very few people are ever, you know, documented or, or seen or remembered. Um, and maybe that's kind of what draws me frankly, John, to your page. Cause it's just the sort of thing we have in, in the watch collecting space, there's sort of a sub genre of interest where, you know, there's a lot of interest in the historical deeds done by people wearing the watches. And to a certain extent, you know, if the watch was on the wrist of Robin Olds, did, did the watch kind of shoot down somebody? No, but yeah, kind of. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, (laughs) kind of. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, if you, if you had the means and you could go out and buy, you know, uh, you know, an F4 or an A4, the A4 flown by John McCain or something like that, you know, would you do it? And, you know, who, who wouldn't do that in, in our, you know, area of interest? So if it's the same sort of thing translated down to a watch. Anyway, there's a lot of these pages that, that talk about this sort of history and specifically, you know, it'll zoom in on the watch on the wrist of the person doing the thing at that moment in time. And I see your page as being basically the exact same thing, except it's just zoomed out one or two levels of magnification so that you, you know, you're seeing a bigger picture of what's happening and, you know, something like the watch or the thing that we're interested in is in the background. But anyhow, I love that stuff, dude. I love your, your tiki background. I totally, I have a breezeway at my house. I want to make like a, uh, a, a recreation of it. Cause I'm all into, uh tropical cocktails now that the weather's getting warm again oh, and yeah. stuff like that. So. Well, dude, it was great to finally meet you. Um, at this point, John, usually what we do, and I won't put you on the spot cause I didn't think we told you about this, but me and Greg, if we have any like last minute debriefs for people who listen or any kind of recommendations, we, you know, just talk about stuff for like the next two or three minutes. Greg, do you have anything quick that you would want to kind of drop on people as a, a quick recommendation?
0: Yeah, sure. A little bit outside of my usual space of either like, uh, you know, cocktails or or things like that. But uh, I was in the library with the kids, by the way, like so, you know, my kids are four and seven and um, forgot how amazing the library is just to kill like a few hours with these with these guys. It's amazing. It's like they just you just take them there and let them run around, grab some books and you get a chance to do some reading on your own, too. Anyway, so I grabbed a magazine that I wouldn't normally grab on my own, which was Outside Magazine, and uh, just stumbled onto an article. So this was from the end of January, so this is probably at least a few issues ago. But um, the article was called um, A Mountain Called Her Home. The uh, The writer, the author is Svati Kirsten Narula. But essentially the story was about uh, – um, a woman, Nanda Devi Unseld, which I guess is the daughter of, you know, this legendary Alpinist, Willie Unseld. And it's just sort of this, this story about how she's, you know, they're, they're kind of gearing up for this expedition on this, uh, you know, this, this huge, crazy, you know, um, Indian peak, which is called Nandi Devi. She's literally named for the peak, which her father, you know, scaled, you know, before she was born. And uh, it's just sort of this fascinating story about sort of the gear up for this, how this expedition came together in 1976. It was some sort of anniversary of when they had first, uh, you know, um, had done the, the, the first time they had climbed it. And uh, just a fascinating story about sort of, you know, her trying to live in her father's footsteps um sort of you know the, the 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 play between sort of men and women in alpinism and, and sort of how that played how you know he was this legendary climber his daughter's now part of this expedition they're putting together it ultimately you know spoiler alert it's a tragic ending um but it was just a real, well-written story um i feel like i've been drawn to a lot of these alpinism stories lately unfortunately they <laughs> a lot of them have some you know sad endings but uh, just really fascinating to look at sort of the, you know, the introduction of women into sort of a an Alpine expedition, sort of this, you know, family lineage of climbing um, and uh, just, you know, really fascinating story. So a couple of, a couple of issues ago from Outside Magazine, it's called A Mountain Called Her Home.
1: Right on, man. I'll have to look into it. All right. So I have something way more lighthearted. Um and it's a John Wayne movie. And to the extent that John Wayne ever made comedies, this is as probably as close as it gets. Um, John, you may have seen this. Have you ever seen Donovan's reef?
2: I have not.
1: Okay. So this, this might be up your alley. I mean, it, you know, fair warning. It's a little corny, um, but it is uh Donovan's reef. This is 1965. It is John Wayne, Lee Marvin, Cesar Romero. Um, oh man. The name of the, uh, one of the two principal actresses in this is escaping me, but she, she was huge. Um, and then a couple of, you know, younger faces and people who you would recognize, you know, as character actors and things like that. And basically the, without giving too much away, the gist is it's like early 1960s post, you know, world war II, obviously. And it's a, a couple of old salts from the U S Navy, you know, who did, their service basically in the South Pacific. They are this thing is filmed in Hawaii. I think it's all filmed on Kauai. So if you can imagine how kind of wild and open Kauai would have been in like 1964. Um, but it's supposed to be somewhere in French Polynesia. And these guys were, you know, they had their destroyer like shout out from under them. They get, sh- you know, shipwrecked a group of these guys on this island. And they, you know, you get the sense that they conducted some kind of guerrilla campaign. It's it's years and years in the past. But um, they end up settling there. They don't go back for a variety of reasons. They basically stay in the South Pacific. And years and years later, the adult daughter of one of the principal actors in this thing, and I'm not spoiling anything, it all comes out at the front. But he is a, he's basically, he would have been a a peer of like the Carey's or the Kennedy's. He's basically a Northeastern, you know, highly educated medical doctor from a a very well-to-do family. He learns early on in the war, you know, via letters, um, you know, that his wife has died in childbirth. He has a daughter, but, you know, she's going to be raised by members of the family that he doesn't really like. He's not connected. So he just doesn't go back when the war is over. And he starts a life, and you know, twenty odd years later, this um, young, vivacious, funny, very cool, and uh, clearly very attractive young woman goes looking for him, and then all the hijinks ensues. And she goes to you know the South Pacific, and it's 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 John Wayne, um, it's Lee Marvin. You know, there's a lot of punches thrown, there's a lot of uh, drinking, but it's a lot of fun just because the the vibe is so cool. I would. I would love to, it, maybe this would be a completely different thing, but I would love to be able to go back and see what 1960s Hawaii was like,
0: Uh, you know, a hundred percent. Yes.
1: Yeah. You know, catch, catch that, you know, the early days of surfing and, you know, um, the whole, you know, tiki bar culture. I mean, I know that's, that's pretty kitschy even in Hawaii, but that would be fun. Oh Yeah. I would, I would do it. And I would, I would buy a bunch of, you know, early Rolex GMT masters and and sock them (laughs) away. That's my recommendation. That's yeah. Hey, there you go. Yeah. So that's it. John Wayne Donovan's reef. Um, I'm going to have to come up with like a play on, on words for like my, my tiki bar nook that I eventually will get built. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. Well, dude, this has been good, John. Thanks. It's, it's great to finally meet you. I appreciate you being a good sport. This is uh, maybe not your usual cup of tea, but believe me, there's a lot of people. I mean, you know, Greg, right? Cole Pennington and Serge and, you know, guys like, uh, you know, our buddy at DC Vintage Watch. This is everybody's cup of tea, you know, with like two big scoops of sugar. This is really great stuff so everybody check out John's page again it's mosquito at mosquito underscore boat on Instagram and you're going to see just all kinds of just cool stuff for lack of a better way to put it really thoughtfully curated visual historical stuff
2: I appreciate you guys
1: on that
0: note
2: cheers
1: gents yeah this will be our last sip take it easy fellas
2: cheers Thanks
0: for having me. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at spiritoftimepodcast at gmail.com.
1: As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.